0: Reviewing. Let's review last week, because last week we went really, really fast, and we pounded out chapters six, seven, and eight. And that's sort of a milestone, because at least one way of looking at Tanya, if you look at the map over there, you'll see that uh, one through eight is a certain color code. You know, sometimes people ask me about the Tanya map if there are... Kabbalistic meanings behind the different colors of the different chapters. Mm. And the answer is the guys at Spotlight Design <laughs> chose whatever colors would be recognizably different and that they but but they would look nice together and so it's pretty much totally an aesthetic thing, but everything's divine providence, so perhaps there's deeper meaning as well. At any rate, you see how chapters one through eight is one color. One through eight. Um, oh, thank you so much. Okay, so remember, what's one through eight? What's going on? Remember how when we started, when we first started, I, I, I told you, you know, some books are more informational and some are more instructional. And then we spoke about which one is Tanya? Do you remember that? And then what did we say about Tanya? Oh, sure. Instructional. mostly instructional right yeah. <clears throat> however even in a work that is mostly instructional it's going to by necessity it's going to start off being a little bit informational i think i give you a couple of analogies for that one is the um the re- the recipe the recipe is instructional but it starts off with a list of ingredients which is informational or um I think the other analogy was about medical school. Before you learn how to practice medicine, the first thing you learn is anatomy. Just what what is what are the body parts? So the first eight chapters of Tanya are sort of the ingredients or the anatomy. We learn a lot of terms, we learn a lot of uh, new phrases. Um, so I want to go through, but, but then once we have one through eight, we have this vocabulary in place with which we can look at everything in life, and especially, most um, pointedly, we have this vocabulary we can use to talk about avaida, about our work, about what we're going to do now. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we actually start doing stuff. Um, so I just want to go through one through eight and talk about the vocabulary that we picked up, the worldview. It's really a worldview that was outlined for us in 1 through 8, and then we're going to go into 9, and um, yeah, it starts to uh, start to get more and more practical, increasingly practical. Okay, let's start off like this. Okay, chapter 1, we introduced the concept that there are different types of um, personalities, perhaps we'll call them. In fact, I don't even think we're sure if they're personalities, we're not sure what they are, but there are three categories, tzaddik, rosha, and benini. These are classifications from the gemara, from our sages. And all we really know is that a benini doesn't do any sins. And um, we're not sure really how that differentiates him from the tzaddik. We're not really sure what the tzaddik is, we have some hints, what, what he might be. Um, but we put that whole discussion on hold. We know these terms are going to be important, but we don't have definitions for them yet. But what do we start getting into? Well, the first thing at the end of Chapter 1, we introduce the doctrine of the two souls. And the first soul that we speak about is... First we speak about the animal soul or the enlivening soul. And that is the drive for self-preservation, the way we've been describing it here in this class. In Chapter 2, we introduce... Chapter 2 is an easy one to remember, because the first line of Chapter 2 is the second soul. So, 2, 2, it's a good mnemonic to remember it. So, what's the second soul? Nefeshulakis. Nefeshulakis, the godly soul or what we call the drive for self annihilation. But please take that only in context of what I described at length last week. Was it last week when I spoke to you about self annihilation isn't some violent, destructive penchant. It's really a a, a a pining, a yearning to rejoin the oneness, the absolute unity with everything. It's also not so easy you heard what's happened in Times Square. The guy couldn't even kill himself. <laughs> oh, but it's not by killing yourself. I know you're going to destroy himself. No, but that, to, right? Yeah, yeah, but... but <laughs> oh. That's what we mean by self-annihilation. It's absolutely selfless, not selfish. That That's an act of selfishness, which you're describing. So he couldn't even do something selfish for himself. Aren't, they ta- aren't the Muslims taught that that is a selfless act? No, it's completely life? selfish, like I explained to you before. They do it for reward. 72, 72, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime there's a payoff that's selfish, the godly soul isn't doing this for, for, for Elam Haba. The godly soul isn't doing this for spiritual reward. Let's get this straight. I, I, I mean, I thought we spoke about that a week ago, but and like I said, it's such a radical concept, I guess it bears repeating. The godly soul doesn't care about candy. Not physical candy and <laughs> not spiritual candy. The godly soul wants one thing. It just wants to rejoin the oneness. That's it. That's it. Elam Haba, that's one of the things you use to bribe an animal soul after it's a little bit more refined. You tell the animal soul, listen, you can eat all the candy you want in this world, but there's a limit. But you go up there, there's infinite candy. It's a better candy. It's an upgrade. It's spiritual candy. But for the godly soul... We don't have to bribe him with a but godly soul just wants to be one with God. That's it. Okay, so that was chapter 2. And we spoke about Ach Yisrael, how all Jews are like one organism, one body. And we spoke about our connection to the leaders of the Jewish people as like the heads or the brain of the Jewish body. That was chapter 2. Chapter 3, what do we get into? The anatomy of the godly soul for extra points, how many components is the godly soul composed of? Ten, ten. 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 very good. Ten. And they correspond to the ten spheroes, but they they're called kohes, excellent, and if we categorize them into three, I'm sorry, into two major categories, what kinds of koiches or capacities does the godly soul possess? Seichel and Midday, which we'll call cognitive or intellectual capacities, meaning the ability to perceive, and emotional capacities, the ability to feel. All right, excellent. Uh, oh, and just one more thing about Chapter Three. And what's the relationship between the intellectual and emotional faculties? Parent-child. Parent, right. Emotions are born from the intellect. That which you are cognitively focused upon, you will come to um, emotionally attach yourself to. Okay. Chapter 4 is about the clothing, Clothing, excellent, okay, so the ten koiches, or capacities, that's what the soul is, but the garments, that's what the soul does, and how many garments? Three. Three, and namely they are, let's start from, let's do it like this, let's start from the outside in, the most, most external garment, action. Action. action, a little bit further inside, Speech. speech and the closest thought. inside thought, thought. and thought so close to the nephesh, it's so spiritual that sometimes we confuse it with who we are but thoughts not part of who we are it's something that we do and we spoke about that vis-a-vis um remember the knock at the door we spoke a little bit about thought control remember this yeah, yes. yeah? okay that's again i told the first eight chapters of tanya is is it's like planting the seeds we're going to get into this a lot more when we get into the instructional chapters, we're going to talk a lot more about this thought control and about <clears throat> all of these things. But I'm just pointing out to you how uh, each of these pieces of information that we're picking up in the first eight chapters is going to come to use later on. Okay, so that's chapter four. What did we? What do we cover in chapter five? Chapter four was the clothing, so chapter five was the Chapter four is my clothing, is what I put on me. Chapter five is the food I put in me, right? And what is the food I put in my soul? Torah, Torah, study. Torah study, right? And Torah study becomes me, right? Just like the food I eat becomes my flesh and blood. So this, the Torah that I study actually, it's not just a, a, a it's not just a, an activity. It's not just an activity; it has a duration, a beginning, and an, an, an end. But the Torah study that I engage in actually rewires my brain. It changes how I see reality. So it's like food that I metabolize and it becomes one with me. Okay, and that brings us to last week. Chapter 6. Chapter 6 was about the composition and the modes of expression of the animal soul. And just like in Chapter 3, we learned that the godly soul has ten modes of expression which are cognitive and emotional, three cognitive, seven emotional. So two, in chapter six, we learned about the animal soul that it has ten capacities which are three cognitive, seven emotional, um, and it expresses itself through, or, or let me just go step by step. So just like in chapter three, we learned that the godly soul has ten capacities, which three are uh, cognitive and seven are emotional. So, too, here in the beginning of Chapter 6, we learn that the animal soul has ten faculties, which are three cognitive and seven emotional. Just like in Chapter 4, we learn that the godly soul expresses itself through thought, speech, and action of the mitzvahs. We learn here that the animal soul, here in Chapter 6, that the animal soul expresses itself through three garments of thought, speech, and action. Not thought, speech, and action of mitzvahs, but thought, speech, and action of what? Bodily needs. Hmm? needs. <coughs> Here's the tricky part. It's, achra. It's, every, it's holiness and everything else. Right. Sitra achra. It's holiness and everything else. Mm-hmm. So the modes of expression of the godly soul are very specific. If it ain't a mitzvah, That's it. It's not a godly garment. The animal soul is everything else. Everything else that's not a mitzvah. Now, in chapter 7, we start talking about how you can take some of that non-mitzvah stuff and elevate it. Right? Because in chapter 7, remember I said 1 through 6 is the microcosm, 7 and 8 are the macro. 1 through 6 is the dichotomy of good and evil as it exists within me, the two souls. 7 and 8 is sort of how that happens in the world around me. So we spoke about, in the world around me, there's something called klipas noyga, which literally means the shiny klipa, or the shiny shell, or husk. And it's shining because it's translucent, because you can see its potential for its godly spark that's in it. And that really is the bulk of all of Elam Hazah. Most of this physical world is that neutral stuff, it all has potential, and if you use it the right way, you lift it up, right? So the food that you eat and then you burn those calories in order to study Torah and do a mitzvah or the money you earn and then you use that money to give tzedakah and to, 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 to buy things that you need to, to live a Jewish life and to serve God. So you're taking that neutral energy and you're elevating it. Okay. And then we also spoke about irredeemable clipbooks that there is something in the world that's just irredeemable, and our relationship with it is avoidance. We avoid it. And as for what's going to be done with it, well, you know, the Navi tells us that Hashem told him that aave mina Hashem says in the first person, I will, ultimately, in the times of Mashiach, remove the irredeemable clipper. you don't do that we don't we we don't engage in it we leave it alone and whatever's left over when the comes Hashem will come behind and scoop it up and get rid of it okay and and this is really important stuff as far as you know later on in tanya remember I told you one through eight is all the important stuff later in Tanya because like later on when we're talking about for instance like in chapters 35 36 37 when we're talking about the The ultimate purpose of our mitzvahs, which is to make a dwelling place for Hashem in this world. We're going to need to know this stuff from 7 and 8. We're going to need to know about what's potentially redeemable, what's irredeemable, and then we're going to have to have insights into the mechanics of how our physical actions with our physical bodies, through the manipulation of physical objects, which in other words means mitzvahs, mitzvahs, action, commandments, which commandments are... I mean, that's almost a redundancy because commandments are actions. And how that actually transforms this world, this physical world, into a place of greater holiness than heaven. But again, that's 35, 36, 37. I'm giving you a sneak preview just for the sake of your understanding that everything we've picked up so far is going to become useful later on. Okay? Okay, so far so good? All right, now... This is uh, a window of opportunity. Any topic from one through eight which you need clarification before going ahead, before being able to move forward, uh, if you want to raise that right now, let me know. Otherwise, I, will, I'll, I will go, we will go right into nine. Yeah? What is the difference between the Yitzhahara and the animal soul? The difference between the Yitzhahara and the animal soul? Okay, so for our purposes let us view it like this. Um, Yetzirah and Nefjabamas are really talking about one thing, but they are um, different aspects of that same entity. Specifically, or particularly, we we would say that we use the term Nefjabamas collectively. We use it to speak about a whole rubric of Stuff going on inside of us, but properly, nefesh means the the seichel, the cognitive powers of the nefesh units the of the of the enlivening force. In other words, and we spoke about it a little bit before. We speak speak about a lot of things, so I don't expect everyone to remember every single word. But I, I think I told you about the, the nefesh is its job is to run the 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 seichel, which means. Figuring out how to get what I want, and then more importantly, figuring out how to not feel guilty about it after I've had it. Mm -hmm. So the chief job of Na'vi Shbamis is to rationalize, which we all know. We all know that means rational lies, the lies we tell ourselves that sound so convincing because they're so logical, right? Mm -hmm. And then the impulse, the emotional impulse, the urge—that's the Itzahara. So if you look at it. The, the 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 attraction to you know whatever I want regardless of you know it, it's sort of an amoral impulse you know, I like it, it looks good that's yetzihora and then the the seichel that comes in and figures out how I'm going to get it how I'm not going to get caught how I'm going to convince myself I'm still okay after I've done it that's nevshibanas all right any other uh, any other clarifications that I require before we move on out of eight one through eight Good, okay, excellent. So let's move on. Chapter nine. What's chapter nine? This table is gonna fall. It is. the leg is not. I got it. Right. Yep. Just do me one favor. Yeah. If it does fall in the middle of class later on, do not react. Do not respond. <laughs> I've probably given thousands of classes, and I can tell you from experience, a table falling in the middle of a class is not nearly, not nearly, not a thousandth of the distraction of the people's reactions to the table falling. <laughs> table falls you can keep you can continue. There's actually a story that I shab the fifth about the Rebbe, who was saying a mimer, Was delivering a Hasidic discourse in Lubavitch in the town of Lubavitch, and there was so much pushing, there was so much pressure from the crowd that the table literally exploded from the pressure of the bodies in the room. The table couldn't hold and it just broke into pieces. And the Rebbe Rashad was saying the Mimer, He didn't even notice that the table had broken into pieces, and so the Hasidim just silently, pin dropped silently took the broken pieces of the table and passed it hand by hand, one, one person to the next, until they'd taken all the broken pieces out of the, of the table out of the room. And when the Rebbe Rashad was finished with the discourse, he looked around and he, he said, where's the table? <laughs> 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 it, it, it broke, we got, don't worry, we got rid of it. So, okay, so this one opposite the other <clears throat> that's our, that's our paradigm, King Solomon's paradigm, that there are equal forces counterbalanced in the world. Zeluma <laughs> And we've been talking about it, about this dichotomy, the, the, we'll call it the godly and the selfish. I think it's better than good and evil. Um, and now we're, we're, we're getting a little bit more into how it actually manifests within our personalities. And the way we describe it is with, a, with, a, with another turn of phrase from, from Shleim Melech. Shleim Melech says in Kehelas that there's a city, ir Katana. it's a small city, And this small city, like most cities, has denizens, people who live there, people who live in the city. And there are two kings who are fighting for complete control over the city. There's an old foolish king, and there's a young wise king. And they both want complete control of the city, which means They want all of the denizens of the city to obey them. Each each of them wants that the denizens of the city should only obey them and not the other. That's, That's the parable. What's it talking about? Okay, so let's take it apart piece by piece. What is the small city, or perhaps more aptly stated, who is the small city? You are, that's right. Yeah. You are the small city. Maybe you're Des Moines, Iowa. Maybe I don't know. You don't want to be Okay. Ithaca, New York. Whatever you want to be. Small city. You're the small city. Who are the denizens, the inhabitants of the city? So Each power, it's a good guess to say that they're the Kuykhus and Afish. The Kuykhus and Afish actually belong to each of the kings, which I'm sort of telegraphing who the kings are. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it's the limbs of the body. The citizens are the limbs of the body. This This is really what the war is about. There are two guys who have the keys to the same car and only one can drive. So the, the fight is about who's going to, not who has the keys, but who's going to actually use the car. So I've sort of all but given it away, but who are the two kings? Well, the, who are the two kings? The two souls. Two souls. And what's the objective? Each king wants to be the one that's in the driver's seat. That's right. That's right. So, who's the old, foolish one? Who's older? I mean, there's two ways of looking at who's older, but in your experience, which soul did you meet first? Your animal soul. That was your survival mechanism as an infant. That was when you would scream your lungs out at three in the morning just because you were hungry and had no guilt. Because that's pure animal survival selfishness and that's the first soul that we get. And then later on when you were 12 if you're a girl or 13 when you're a boy then you get introduced to your alcoholic soul. So the young soul is the Nef chalakis the godly soul all right and that's why we say the old one is foolish mm-hmm. because that's that's the animal soul usually not you're usually saying oldest soul yeah it's 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 stereotype. a little bit of a twist it's not right? the typical well it's not the typical stereotype you know mm-hmm. slam malik wasn't a hack he didn't write you know with the stereotypes with the tv tropes you know he had the uh, had original ideas or perhaps we should say true ideas so truth is more interesting than, uh, than, than formula. So yes, you're right. The formula is the old wise. But in the reality is, it's the old foolish king and the young wise king. And they're fighting. And what are they fighting over? The city. And that means that each one of them wants that your body should be a vehicle one hundred percent of the time toward expressing its will. So whatever the godly soul sees, when I say the word see I don't mean visually I mean what it envisions, not what it you know, it's not physical sight. So I'm referring to the three cognitive cognitive capacities. It's chokh Bin das. So the godly soul with its godly chokh mabina das is able to perceive godliness. Then, with that recognition, that appreciation of godliness, you know, when a godly soul looks at a situation, he walks in the room and he scopes it out and he's trying to just just gathering data. What data is he accumulating? Or I think data is plural. What data are he accumulating? But that sounds awful. It sounds awful. Okay. So I'm going to say it wrong because it's easier on the ear. What data is he accumulating? When the godly soul is scoping out any situation, what's he looking for? Opportunity to elevate things. Opportunity, well, to elevate things would be one opportunity. That's that's one thing. But in general, he's just looking for opportunities to, to connect. connect to just Whatever Hashem wants. So he's, he's looking, walking in the room. He's not looking for what can I get out of this. He's certainly not looking for, uh, oh, oh. That back table over there, there seem to be some brownies. That's not his. <laughs> He's looking for opportunities to do a Mitzvah. All right. And that's just the, the cognition of the, of the godly soul. And then obviously, because the emotions are the children of the intellect, once he starts scoping it out and gathering that data, it doesn't just stay up here, then it goes down to the heart, and now there's, a, there's an emotion, meaning a motivation, a motive, I want to go over there. Oh, I see somebody who needs some help. I see somebody who needs a kind word. And he sort of... But, but it's still just a desire. So it's cognition. It's emotion. But now what is the soul yearning for? The godly soul. It sees the opportunity to do something godly. It feels a desire to do that godly thing. By the way, I could flip it and I could make it a scenario where it identifies a risk of, God forbid, being sundered from godliness, it feels dread or terror, whoa let's recoil, let's get away from this spiritually dangerous situation either way, it could be it could be a positive thing or it could be a negative thing, but either way it, it, it assesses, you know, it identifies then it forms an emotional the appropriate emotional reaction so either an attraction toward the opportunity to connect to God or a um, recoiling from the risk of being separate from God but it's just a, it's just an emotion. What is the godly soul yearning for now at this point? To do something. To, to do, something, something, to, do to act on it. To act on it. But to act on it in order to act on it, whose cooperation does it need? Um, the nefesh of the person. You. It needs yeah. your cooperation. And this, by the way, remember when we discussed a little bit about the third soul? Yeah. Yeah. About the nefesh asiflis? Yeah, I like that one. So the nefesh hasichlis is sort of the one who's listening to both pleas. Yeah, that's sort of you. That's like the filter or the, the go-between. It wants to convince the nefesh hasichlis to let it have the keys to the car. So the godly soul definitely knows exactly where it wants to go and has a strong desire to go there, but it wants the keys to the car. Give me the keys to the car. I want to go... Give me the feet so I can walk over to that person. Give me the mouth so I can say those words of comfort to that person. Give me the arms so I can put my arm around the shoulder and say, Hey, everything's okay. Let me have use of the body. Otherwise, I just have these desires and they're unfulfilled. And the godly soul doesn't just want that on a case-by-case basis. It wants all the time it wants to know I planted my flag this body belongs to me this is it when I need use of the body I don't have to go sign papers and get a stamp and get approval I want to automatically be able to use the body according to my desire now at the same time obviously the animal soul wants the exact opposite or the exact same thing (laughs) which is it has its desires. It has its agenda. It has its wish list of behaviors. And it needs the same body. Wow. You can see where the conflict would come in. Oh, and then, to top it all off, each one of them thinks that the other one's agenda is going to get us killed. <laughs> because the godly soul... The godly soul, death is separation from godliness, and if you do something that sitra, to the other side, self-serving and not expressly for the sake of serving God, that's death. So the animal soul says, "I just want to, I just want ha- to enjoy my brownies," and the godly soul says, "No, that means you want to die." <laughs> and then conversely, the animal soul is self-preservation, survival. So the animal soul is saying, "What are you talking about? It's it." it it's time to close up shop and go home for Shabbos. We need to make money here, or we're gonna die. So the animal soul thinks the godly soul's trying to get him killed. The godly soul thinks the animal soul's trying to get him gil- killed. And they both need to use the exact same body. So you can see where the, the tension <laughs> can definitely build. Now a little bit more. It's not just that their goals are so different. It's that the degree of autonomy that each one is seeking is so absolute. Let me repeat that. It's not just they want opposite things or the same thing. They want to use the same thing for opposite agendas. It's the degree to which they want autonomy. If you ask a godly soul, or for that matter an animal soul, but they would give you the same answer, Are you interested in a two-state solution? One day we'll do godly stuff, and one day we won't. Neither of them, unless they're being diplomatic, but souls don't lie. Souls are going to tell you the truth. They're going to say, no, that's self-destruction. No way. There's absolutely no way. I want autonomy now there are different degrees of autonomy and this is what we're going to come to understand as we begin to define tzaddik, Rosha, and bennini but the let's just start with the ideal level of autonomy the ideal level of autonomy that the godly soul wants within the body is not that there is an animal soul, and it's plotting, and it's scheming, and it's constantly looking for an opportunity to seize control. But but I won't let it, and I'll fight it, and I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll beat it, I'll thwart every attempt. That's unmanageable. The godly soul says, I want it gone. I don't want the threat. I don't want to have to stay one step ahead. And, and the morning that I don't stay a step ahead of the animal soul, that's the morning that I'm going to, end up using my body to do something selfish and separate myself from God that's no way to live so the godly soul says I want the body, yeah but that's the external manifestation of how thoroughly I've got control I wanna be the only set of keiches in this person I want all the cognition and all the emotion to be purely godly I don't want another voice I don't want to have to reckon with it. I want to be the only agenda. Not that I'm able to force my agenda through and then the body only listens to me. I want to be that I'm the only agenda. In other words, I want to be a tzaddik. I mentioned to you before when I was foreshadowing a little bit of the stuff that we're going to learn later. And we'll learn about it in the next chapter, Mitzvah Shem in chapter 10. But what's a tzaddik? The tzaddik is a person my practical a definition of tzaddik. Tzaddik who requires no impulse control why does a tzaddik require no impulse control cuz he or she has no negative impulses that's another way of saying all godly soul no animal soul so whatever urges come up can be acted upon because they're only godly urges and that's what the godly soul wants yeah but the godly, but the animal soul is not going anywhere so you want it to listen to him like a, be, be, being practical your, your question is, but the god, but the animal soul's not going anywhere. So, what what's the godly soul's dream, or is it just, hey, I can dream, and eh? you know, yeah. no. But let's let's ask practically. What is the if you ask the godly soul? Okay, fine. I get your dream. I hear your dream. You want to be the only soul, okay? But let's be realistic. There is an animal soul. So, what, could you talk to me practically what your dream is? So, the godly soul would probably say something like this. Um, he can stay here if he swears allegiance to me, and if he works for me. He has to become my worker. He's not allowed to remain a second king, co-king, not even vice king, viceroy. He's, he's got to work for me, Then he can stay here. That's what the godly soul will tell you. Well, what does that look like? What does it look like? Yeah. Here's what it looks like in the godly soul's dream. It would look like. Um. I want. I'm in uh, the godly soul is talking here. I'm in a body, and all I want is oneness with God. And the way that I accomplish that is through doing mitzvahs. Remember, let's 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 recall the godly soul in a body as uncomfortable as it is as uncomfortable as it is is really benefiting is really gaining because the godly soul in heaven has a subject-object relationship with God what does it mean that God that what does it mean that Shamas delight in basking in the rays of godliness in heaven. in mezivah sheenah. That really means the experience of the soul in heaven is observer. Observer. So the, the soul is the, the subject, I, godliness is the object, what I am observing, and it receives delight from that experience. It's world's what, the greatest show on earth or I guess not on Earth. greatest show up there. okay. However, that's not oneness, decidedly not. It's not oneness, by definition, it's subject object. The, the, the soul is observing God. What the, what the soul really wants is to become one with God. How does the soul become one with God? It's ironic. Up there, it can observe God. But it can't become one. Because by definition, if you're observing, if I'm observing you, I'm watching you. So then, there's I, and there's you. And as much as the soul has incredible emotions based on what it sees... It it, it has this incredible Ahavas Hashem, an incredible yira Hashem, but it's I love you. So there's I, and there's you. I'm in awe of you. So there's I, and there's you. When the the soul comes into a body, it loses all that consciousness, or it's muffled down to barely an audible murmur, because it's just covered in these layers of, of... consciousness of the physical universe but what the soul gains is the uh, the ability to actually become one with God so God wills the tefillin shall be put on it's one of the 613 commandments the mitzvahs are Hashem's will he and his will are one and when I put on tefillin it's not me and God It's me becoming the vehicle, just like, remember I spoke about before when we talked about Torah, that my arm reaches for the cup. I don't enlist my arm to get the cup. I have a desire, I don't even have to verbalize it in my own mind. I have a desire for the cup, and without any command, I just will it And my hand, because that's the hand is subservient to my will, the will in my brain, my hand immediately obeys. So when I'm putting on filling, it's like I'm the hand of God, so to speak. I become a a vehicle, a transparent vehicle. The level of surrender that's possible through complying to the 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 action mitzvahs is is oneness. That's oneness. So getting to, to, to your question. Ultimately, what the godly soul wants most is one thing. With oneness. God. Wants oneness. But here's, here's, here's the rub. Godly soul, you really want to be one with God? You can't do it up there. Up there, you see a lot, but there's you and God. Down here, you see nothing, or basically nothing. But by becoming the chariot, the vehicle, you become an extension of God himself. That's oneness. And the godly soul says, how do I do it? And you say, you need a body, and you need an animal soul. Because the godly soul on its own cannot run the body. The animal soul is the energy, is the life force that runs the body. So for the godly soul to really get its dream, it can't do it without an animal soul. It needs an animal soul. It needs the animal soul to be that life force, that energy that actually brings me to the tefillin and to, to take them out of the cases and to unwind them and to put them in my arm and all that action. That's the motor behind that is, is the animal soul. So what the godly soul really wants is that all day long I'm putting on tefillin, so to speak. It doesn't have to be tefillin. There are other mitzvahs. Every moment of embodiment, this is the godly soul's dream, every moment of embodiment is one effortless series of using the body and its energy, read animal soul, to do nothing but acts of surrender to God, read mitzvahs. So that's the dream of the godly soul. Now, like we mentioned, the animal soul has the exact opposite dream. It's going to run the show. It's not going to have to contend with any godly soul. It's not going to have to get approval. It's not going to have to rationalize so much anymore. Or maybe just to itself. Godly, I mean, animal souls also have a conscience. But it only has to rationalize to itself, it's not going to have to fight with a godly soul, and that's what it wants. However, there's one big caveat here. There's one big caveat, where you cannot exactly compare, there's not an exact equivalency between godly soul and animal soul. And it's a major exception, it's, a major, it's an asterisk, but it's a very important asterisk. The godly soul really, really, really wants this dream that we described where it can really become one with God through acts of devotion through the body that are powered by the energy of the animal soul. It really wants that. It's not joking. The animal soul wants what it wants, but it doesn't really want what it wants. There's only one power in the universe. There's really only one agenda. There's really only one objective. Hashem's goal the godly soul obviously is in line is in in line with the godly objective because it's godly but what you need to know is the animal soul is also in line with the godly objective But how can you say the animal soul is in line with the godly objective but it causes so much disruption it's you know what it's like when the little kids come to the kitchen out of saying mommy how can we help (laughs) you want to help Get out of the kitchen, right? Exactly. So the animal soul really wants to help. If Oh, you have such noble intention. Leave me alone, okay? Or at least, no, not leave me alone, because we said we need it, but just stop having an agenda. Just, I'll let you know when I need to make use of you. And yet, we see that the animal soul is programmed to be very assertive and to constantly push with its agenda. So what's up with that? What's up with that is that the Altareva says, and this is the very, very, very last line of chapter nine. It's a one-liner in the end of chapter nine. That everything that animal soul is doing is actually for your benefit, and it's only doing it because of your benefit. It doesn't really want you to win. It doesn't really want you to give in. So then, why is it doing this? The, the Al Rebbe quotes from the Zayar. The Zayar has a, has a martial a parable there for explaining this. The Zayar says, like this there was a king. How many parables that would there was a king? A lot of them. And, but why? Because a king represents Hashem. And that's what we're here to study. Studying about godliness. So, there was a king. And the king had a... A son! You know this one? That I must have said it last week. That's right. And he loved this son. Of course. Of course. And he wanted to test his son... He wanted to make a man out of him, and to make a man out of his son. What he wanted to do was put him in a in a compromising position where he would be tempted to behave immorally, but he would prove himself, and he would not succumb, and he would behave the right way. So this is the this is the parable from the Zoya. It's very not I don't know in 2017 it doesn't translate well. But the king hires a woman of ill repute. That's the euphemistic term. The... And he tells her to seduce the prince. But she knows and, he, and she understands that the king is doing this because he wants the son to overcome and to thwart her advances. So now she's conflicted. This, this is where it gets interesting because the parable then is sort of like in the mind of the harlot in the story. What's her psychology? It's actually interesting. She's It's interesting because it's not PC for 2017, but if you think about the storytelling of it, she's the main character. Um, Her psychology, in other words, her experience of the story, is the most important perspective in the story. She's not the object in the story. It's actually the story, the parable, is about conveying her inner motivation. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm just saying from a storytelling perspective. So that the story becomes about her psychology at this point. She has a job, and she is a loyal subject of the king. I know kings, subjects. This, this, the whole thing isn't relatable to 2017. But she's a loyal subject of this good king, and, and and she understands that she has a job to do, and she wants to do her job well, and that means she has to try as hard as she can to make the the the, the prince um, choose the wrong thing. At the same time, what is her? True desire is is that the prince will resist. So she has this conflict. At one on the one hand, the king told her what to do, and she can't. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, she can't. Uh, what do you call it? somebody gold breaking? Somebody who's like not doing their their work. Somebody shows up to work and there, what do you call it? There's a term for it about somebody who's not really doing their full, they're not pulling the pulling their weight. There's a term slacker, okay. There's a I forget the term, but there's a there's a technical term for not really doing your full job. So she has to do, with all of her powers and her resources and her skills, whatever, she has to do the best possible job. At the same time, what does she really want, she wants to fail. And failure is success. She, if she lets on that failure is success, now she just betrayed her mission, because her mission is she's got to actually present a real test to the prince. So, says, that's your animal soul. Don't buy it. Don't buy into the illusion. You think that this voice, this, 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 this drive, this this consciousness within you which is so selfish and it's so petty and it's so crass and it's so and, and and you think that it's really trying to ruin your life it's not trying to ruin your life everything okay over there yeah It's not trying to ruin your life as much as it feels like it is. As much as it feels like it is, it's not trying to ruin your life. It's trying to do its job. <coughs> so whenever you feel that conflict, the Alter Rebbe wants us to know. Whenever you feel like, oh, you fake, what is this? If you really wanted me to serve you, you'd remove this obstacle. I mean, it's enough that there's obstacles around me this obstacle you put inside of me and you gave it my voice which is a very convincing sounding voice to each one of us, right? Mm-hmm. You gave this, yeah? So, oh, yeah. It's considered the Yetzirah, So, the Yitzhak, whatever you want to call it, it works for the king. Or like the Gemara says, that the Satan is L'Shem Shamayim. It doesn't it's look actually, like it. It's consider, also considered an angel that's how you own that's right it. yeah so it's not a it's not like god forbid La in in, in a christological theology where it's like the separate force and then it's fighting with the godly force and they they they're dueling there's no duality there's one force there's one king there's one power and even this voice within you that seems to be going against every wholesome impulse that you have it's ultimate agenda is that you should serve god In fact it its whole presence in your life is that you can really serve god because if you would serve god without this resistance without this challenge then you would not be able to accomplish what you're accomplishing when you do have the resistance yeah Yeah, uh, could you relate this to the struggle of uh, Yosef Sadik and Pancifer's wife Is, is it the same thing basically? What well, says about uh, the wife of Pei that she also had a, a uh, l'shem shamayim? She also had an altruistic motivation. So, for our point of view, it's not that we should be—we should let our guard down and say, "Oh, my animal soul, he doesn't mean it." But you have this is a serious, this is a serious business. Don't let your guard down. Don't let your guard down for a minute, because. He's a professional. The animal soul is a professional. He's good. He's, the, he's a master at his trade. But at the same time, don't get despondent. Don't get scared. At the end of this whole thing, you're going to see everyone is really on one side. There, There was only ever one side. This was only ever for your benefit. It was only, the whole purpose was only just to bring you closer to the king. That was the only thing that was ever really happening. So we keep this in the back of our minds so we should not ever begin to feel that the the, the challenge is insurmountable, yeah? So as a person works on themselves, does their stagel change? Like their their inner voice? Oh the question is and therefore As we continue to resist, I'm rephrasing your question slightly, but as we continue to resist, do we get stronger and do we get better at resisting? And the answer is yes, we do get stronger. And then the follow-up to that is that the stronger you get, then your trainer comes in and puts more weight on the bar. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah, not kidding. You're not kidding. Yeah, it's always a struggle. Okay, I'm gonna be religious about ending on time. Thank you so much.